नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार बग पॉडकास्ट दिस इज कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट सो टुडेज टॉपिक इज अमेरिकन नेवर अंडरस्टूड अफगानिस्तान लाइक द तालिबान डेड एंड टू एक्सप्रेस दैट पॉइंट ऑफ व्यू वी हैव शादी हमीद उतस शादी थैंक्स वंस अगेन फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट थैंक्स फॉर हैविंग मी माय प्लेजर All right, guys. So, uh, why is this title given to the uh, to the today's discussion? Is that Shadi recently wrote a beautiful op-ed in the Atlantic, and I, I I think it was on the 23rd of August, and I and I read it, and I was like, you know, I have to get Shadi back again uh, to talk about this because obviously, you know, from an Indian perspective, obviously Afghanistan is a very strategically important place, but I wanted to understand. a unique perspective and, and and i i love reading shadi is because he he brings a refreshingly new perspective every time when i read him i and the and the good thing about shadi is he doesn't expect you to agree with him but he's willing to talk <laughs> about it so 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 shadi let's begin with this so you've been commenting uh, on this because i've been following your views on this for a while now because i went back and started reading on things you've said in the past too you've always said this and you've been very consistent and in fact this can be picked up right from your book islamic exceptionalism too because it, it, it kind of stems from that world view so why do you say that the americans never got taliban Yeah well you know first of all it's not just about the US not getting the Taliban it's about the US having a fundamental difficulty understanding muslim majority countries whether it's the middle east or in south and southeast asia and obviously afghanistan is a case in point that um and and there's i i think there's a lot of reasons why that's the case i mean some of it has to do with the argument in my book that islam Islam is difficult for outsiders to to understand in a nuanced way and when it comes to American policymakers they they don't really understand religion that well because most of them are secular we're talking about a liberal elite that doesn't really get religion or they see religion as something to manage or to control or to lessen they don't want to see too much religion in public life and they want to promote more secular ideas um and even if they do have more familiarity with christianity christianity isn't always the best lens with which to understand islam because islam is different than christianity right um when it comes to afghanistan and the taliban more specifically my argument in the atlantic essay was that um we had this idea that we could reshape or reengineer a culture and we took western concepts that might work well for the US and we tried to superimpose them onto Afghanistan couple examples that i emphasize in the piece one might be obvious to listeners which is we spent close to a billion dollars uh supporting um supporting gender equality programs in Afghanistan which which is good in theory like who would who would disagree with that but when it comes to but to make that the priority and to focus on that in my view it got the order a little bit wrong because what afghanistan needed first and foremost was a functioning pluralistic democratic system and we didn't really focus on that in fact instead of instead of focusing on helping afghans a uh, build a legitimate political process that different factions could participate in 
we supported a top-heavy, strong, centralized presidential system. And when you have a divided society along ethnic, religious, and linguistic um, linguistic lines, you don't want to concentrate too much power in the presidency because then it makes um, politics zero-sum. It makes it winner-takes-all. And whoever wins the presidency then dominates the rest of the political system. So our, our prioritization was wrong in a number of these ways. Um, and then, of course, um, the second thing I'll mention is you also we were also trying to build a, a Western style formal legal system. So, again, we spent we spent uh, close to a billion dollars trying to um, sup- trying to develop the trappings of a of a formal legal system with a judiciary courts, so on and so forth. And what we didn't realize is that, or what we weren't fully cognizant of as Americans was that most Afghans had a longstanding preference for an informal dispute resolution system where tribal elders on the local level would resolve disputes in a very quick, efficient manner. So uh, most Afghans didn't really buy into this new system that the U.S. was trying to support through with hundreds of millions of dollars. And what that allowed was for the, for the Taliban to come in and say, well, look, um, in a chaotic situation where there are competing warlords, um, you want to get things done. You want to resolve disputes. You want to avoid having a chaotic situation. The Taliban came in and said, we can get that done for you in a way that the central government isn't getting it done. And that that provided a real opening for the Taliban to come in and say, hey, you might not agree with our extremist ideology, but what we can give you that the government can't give you is what I call in the piece rough and ready justice. This kind of brutal efficiency of of um, of uh, dispute resolution where you kind of knock heads together on a local level and you tell different tribal groups or factions to just resolve things very quickly instead of going through the bureaucratic red tape of the central government and of the U.S.-funded courts that a lot of Afghans didn't actually even trust. So, yeah, so let's let's expand on this a little bit. So uh, you're right here that, Talib, you know, the Taliban is part of a society or, you know, Afghanistan is by and large a society, which is a tribal society. Let's say, you know, I think what around 40 percent are Pashtuns and then Duranis are like 12 percent and the Gilzai's are around 15 percent or something of that sort is is the makeup of that that society. And what what I what from what I have understood uh, is that there was a Durani uh, elite uh uh, and uh, they had a kind of uh, tussle between the Duranis and the and the Barakzai and 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 all these tribal conflicts uh, are happening in a society. So so now how do we solve this conundrum, Shadi? Because in my eyes, this is a classic case of uh, a post-industrial society imposing its methods on a pre-industrial society, and the tussle is actually anthropological. <laughs> Nothing else, to be very honest. It is a society which is anthropologically pre-industrial. And here you have a post-industrial culture coming there, 
now i don't even want to get into uh, because i believe the post industrial culture is objectively better than the pre industrial one but we are not into a popularity contest hmm. we're not doing that but we're trying to understand but then how does a, a mega power like america with so many think tanks and and so many intellectuals so many area experts where you have a person getting into an area studying the literature reading the language understanding the language spending time with the tribals getting everything in order and they can't get this basic reality that it's like giving uh, you know everybody this technology but they're not ready for it so uh, now one side of the argument was they should have never gone in but there are points that yes maybe after 911 there was a case to go in but but then now there is a case that how do you go out so so how first of all how do you solve this pre industrial post industrial conundrum then yeah so obviously it's it's quite challenging i mean one thing i'll say is so i i'm not a universalist in so far as it relates to liberalism i don't believe that all cultures and peoples need to necessarily follow this liberal trajectory towards the end of history that said just because afghanistan is more pre-industrial and is less developed i don't think that means afghans did not want or weren't ready for democracy and when i say democracy here i mean it in the more procedural minimal sense i'm not talking about the western style american approach that has all of these other things i think that it's a universal sentiment with with um with all peoples and cultures and religions is that individuals want a say in how they're governed they want to feel like they have some agency in their own lives and i think afghans um are are no exception to that so if i would prioritize i would focus more on the procedural side in a kind of decentralized federal approach where you emphasize the local and you you try to empower afghans on the local level to to um to to have space to make their own decisions even if that means that they would be more sympathetic to sharia not necessarily the taliban's interpretation of sharia which i don't think is the majority approach among afghans but what we do know is that the vast majority of afghans do want sharia to play some role in public life now what what does that mean in practice that's where there's a lot of variation but the basic premise that um the majority of afghans don't necessarily want to have a secularized system i think most people would agree on that now the question is why is it that the us and americans post 911 didn't understand those basic things or weren't weren't willing to fully take them take them into account well i think there was a real tension with the bush administration after 911 where um Bush as as uh, many listeners might recall didn't actually want nation building. He was very skeptical of nation building, mm-hmm. but at the same time he had these ambitious ideas where he wanted Afghanistan to stop being um stop being a focal point for terrorism and to pre- prevent al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups from having a foothold. So the question is So he was torn in these two different directions of wanting to um make Afghanistan less hospitable to jihadism but he also said that he was skeptical of nation building. 
So America, and this is the problem, I think, contrary to previous empires, if we want to use that term, we, we act in many ways like an imperial power, but we're not actually willing to fully embrace the implications of the imperial mindset. So we have one foot in and one foot out. So we want to do things on the cheap. And I think it made sense for the Bush administration to go along. So, for example, in the 2004 Bonn Agreement, which set the framework for the new Afghanistan in terms of its electoral and political system, it was easy for us to go along with Hamid Karzai and other people like him who wanted to have a strong presidency because they wanted to centralize power. Because we didn't want to get into nation building, we pretty much said, okay, that works for us. Hamid Karzai, he seems moderate. He seems like someone who gets us. He spent time in the West. So we'll kind of accept the idea that he will concentrate power in his own factions, in his own, in the people who are close to him, so on and so forth. And so in that sense, we were outsourcing the future of Afghanistan to these corrupt leaders who maybe were okay in some ways or better than the alternative, but they had their own interests in mind, which was primarily power and primary, primarily um, getting their own way at the expense of having a more decentralized federal structure that would bring in a more pluralistic uh, a pl a pluralistic factions. So, you know, so I, that's how I would sort of, it's more complicated than that, but that I think is the short version of, you know, we're, we're in, but we're also out. And we weren't really sure as Americans of what we really wanted and how long we wanted to stay. But it, it, this hasn't this been the kind of tone and tenor in American foreign policy when it comes to, I don't know, I, I always, in a very tongue-in-cheek way, say giving freedom and democracy to the rest of the world, which is what America keeps doing. They always keep uh, going and giving freedom and democracy to the world. I find it very funny. But uh, here's the thing. Now, let's say uh, you just said it was an in-and-out approach. So so wasn't there, if I'm not mistaken, a real school of thought that, that genuinely believed that if we want to get into Afghanistan, we have to stay there for like at least 50 to 60 years. It has to be for the long haul. We literally have to, you know, go down to the bottommost barrel. But then you run into problems of the local kind in America where maybe the local population in America might be like, why are we spending our taxpayers' dollar? taxpayer dollars on these things so, so how does one balance this out that like what is the mood are there any surveys in america uh, that 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 gauge these kinds of things and can those surveys be taken seriously yeah well you did have you know as as you're saying you did have this kind of what we might call a more neocon approach that said hey we have to be in there for 20 30 40 years however long it takes but the problem is um that might be plausible if you have one president who believes that. But when you have first Bush, then Obama, then Trump, then Biden, each of them are paying attention to domestic considerations in different ways. And they realize that over time, the American people don't really have the stomach. Like, it's hard to tell Americans, hey, we're going to be here for 40 years, however long it takes. You can say that, and maybe some Americans would be sympathetic and were sympathetic after 9-11, where there was broad support for 
um, a long-term presence in Afghanistan because people were thinking about 9-11 and they were afraid about future terrorist attacks. But after a certain period, people start to move on and 9-11 doesn't play the same role in the American imagination as it once did. It becomes harder to make that case, especially when we're focusing more inward as a country. Internal divisions, especially in the Trump era, are becoming more paramount. Afghanistan disappeared from the public debate for several years, even when Trump last year was signing the deal with the Taliban. And this is an incredible, just try to imagine this for a second. Here are incredible images of senior U.S. officials in Doha sh shaking hands and sitting down with Taliban leaders. You would have thought that Americans would find that odd and that would be a major public debate but it didn't actually get much coverage. Um, and, you know, so even something like that, making common cause with the Taliban, when we considered them our arch enemies in 2001 and 2002, and then um, 18 years later, Americans kind of shrugged their shoulders. Oh, we're making peace with the Taliban. Trump seems to be fine with them and he wants to bring them to Camp David, all of that stuff. So I think that the fact that Americans, um, you know, don't have the long term focus on these issues and then our politicians and our policymakers are also they also have a short term attention span. It makes it hard to do something that lasts 40 years. Right. And quite frankly, I was someone who was um generally supportive that we had to think about withdrawal at some point. I wouldn't do it the way that the Biden team did it, but I don't think it was plausible to say we're just going to stay there um, forever um, without having a clear plan of what we wanted to do. I think at some point you have to kind of you have to come to terms with the fact that this can't go on forever. Um so I think that this is where it really becomes challenging that there's no great there's no great alternative. So you have someone like me who's criticizing Biden and I was very critical of the way he did this. I think what we've seen is utter incompetence of a of a magnitude that I would have never dreamed about if you had talked to me a year ago. But at the same time the supporters of the Biden team they say well ha okay fine. It wasn't done well. We could have anticipated some of the difficulties better. But we, you know, what was the other alternative? There was no great option. So I think that when it comes to the when it comes to the American people and what they have a kind of tolerance for, I think there's also an awareness that, you know, there isn't a great case to make because no no option was really ideal in any particular way, and and the American people weren't paying attention for the last three, four, five, six years. And all of a sudden now everyone is paying attention. And there's something I think, I don't want to say disingenuous, but I think there's something odd about the fact that all of a sudden everyone is commenting. Um, and even I'm paying more attention. I mean, um, I've written about this at different points, but to be fair, I wasn't paying um, as much attention to this last year either. So everyone now is just trying to understand what's going on for the first time where it's a, it's a page one story. 
Um, and that's what's hard to kind of deal with this is that sometimes people are paying attention, but most of the time, Americans don't care about Afghanistan and don't want to pay attention to what was going on on the ground. Yeah, but here's the interesting bit. Now, let's talk about the way the Biden administration has handled this. Now, there's, I, I don't know where to start, to be very honest, uh, from the from the timing, because from what I understand, uh, if they would have done this in the winter, the Taliban would have been far less active and the Taliban would not have maybe been in a position to take over as quickly as they could have because, because of the weather conditions maybe in Afghanistan and uh, those kinds of things. That's point number one. Second, the way they have done things, the way they have carried out. I mean, uh, look, all I can do is I can just look at the White House briefings, which are shown uh, in the media in India, where the communication, even for a person who is just sitting here in India. And when I listen to them and I just sit here wondering, is it these people are professional politicians and spokespersons of a you know, a major political outfit and in, in the United States of America, which is the most powerful country in the world. And and they just sound like people who have no clue about what is happening. And then there's the statement about Americans are going to be in this position. Then Americans who are staying there who want to leave, they can come. Then this is happening. And then you have the unfortunate incident of the bomb blast where so many innocent Afghans and uh, American troops have passed away. And the entire discourse, and and then when I look at all this, now, I don't know how the Trump administration would have handled it. I don't know because hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? You don't know how they would have handled it. But th there was this whole narrative with the Biden administration where, you know, oh, now the adults are in the room. The adults are going to take care of everything. And, and Sam Harris, I mean, it doesn't get <laughs> more mm. anti-Trump than Sam Harris. I mean, Sam has a you know, pathogenic hatred for Trump at times. I mean, it just comes across as that. And even for a guy like Sam to go, I'm eating my words syllable by syllable. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, you know, what the hell is going on? I mean, what is this administration trying to do? Look, I have, like I said, I have no skin in the game. I could care less sitting here. I, but I just look at it and I just think, is there any way, is there a defense for the Biden administration? Yeah, so even if Trump had been just as bad, I think in in many ways this is worse because our expectations are different. I mean, Kushal, as you as you alluded to right now, the whole point of Biden conceptually is that he would be competent, he would be responsible, he would get things done. And for someone who for a president who has been talking about competence and bringing in the adults in the room and the senior officials who are supposedly the best and the brightest, and some of them actually are. I mean, this is why we always have to put the best and the brightest in scare quotes, because, yes, people can be brilliant. Yes, they can be smart. But that is not enough to have a good policy. And we're seeing this right now. Um, and, you know, I. You know, I've I've had conversations with them in the past. I don't know them super well, but like they're these are people that you respect, like Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. And you know, being being in some of the same circles as them, you do develop a respect. These are smart guys, but you see them speaking to the public, and you wonder what is going on here. What 
how can we explain this terrible messaging and the tone deafness of how they're talking to reporters about this? And I think that a lot of this, a lot of this, uh, the buck stops with the president. And ultimately, Joe Biden is someone who is very stubborn. He's had a particular view about Afghanistan for a long time. It's clear that he wanted to just get, you know, get out. And he he didn't have patience to kind of postpone this until the winter or to have a different modified timeline. You could tell that he just wanted to be done with this so he could refocus on his priorities. And I think that when you see that coming from the president, it has an effect on the other senior staff. They take his cues. And so they saw that Biden wasn't really engaged on this. So they themselves weren't particularly engaged on this either. They didn't really make this a priority. They didn't care as much as they should have. And I, you know, on Twitter after um, after uh, Biden gave his first that first big address after the Taliban takeover the other week, I was struck by just how callous Biden sounded when he was talking about Afghans, he was pretty much blaming it on them and not taking responsibility and saying, hey, look, we're not going to fight for them if they're not willing to fight for themselves, forgetting the fact that more than 60,000 Afghan security and military personnel died, were killed by the Taliban from 2001 on 2001 onwards. We forget about that. Afghans have been willing to fight and die for the future of their country. But when they saw that the U.S. was basically pulling the rug from under them and where a lot of the Afghan army was dependent on U.S. training, U.S. spare parts and maintenance, on the more than 10,000 contractors who helped them run their equipment, when all that is pulled in just the matter of a couple months, it's going to have a devastating effect on morale. So it's understandable when I look at Afghans, if I was an Afghan, I, pro I probably wouldn't want to fight for the government or for the Afghan army either, because I could see that the U.S. was making it by, by pulling out this support. It was going to be very hard to actually run the equipment and advanced weaponry in a very like basic on a very basic level. So I think all of this to me suggests that there was a level of cruelty from the Biden administration where we, and that's why the word betrayal is used. I don't want to overstate that, but yes, um, if you talk to many Afghans now, if you see what they're saying, it's understandable that they would feel betrayed because there was a sense that Biden himself did not have much sympathy for their plight. It was all about America first. And that's why I think another way of looking at it is that Biden is not too dissimilar from Donald Trump. He talks in the same way about prioritizing national interests in this very narrow way where it's where it's we got to prioritize America's interest, American lives. And if that means some Afghans are going to be left to the fray, so be it. And that is similar to the kind of approach that Donald Trump had as well. Yep. It's it's a very weird sort of a conundrum. Like I I clearly remember you know certain statements. Like I think it was Blinken who had said that there you know if whenever if and when they kind of uh, leave uh, you know Afghanistan that 
they would have an agreement with the Taliban and that agreement is going to be conditions based. I clearly remember reading an article that the, the emphasis here is on conditions based. What the hell are those conditions? You're literally kind of packed into an airport. They've taken over whatever they want to take, care, take over. They have given you a deadline, which is what, 31st August, which is going to be over tomorrow. And after that, basically all bets are off. And, and now I want to connect this to the media coverage in America. Now, look, I, I, I will be the first one to say that, yes, Fox News is completely softballing things to Trump. I accept that. But there has always been this narrative inside America that, you know, Fox News is pro-Trump. Pro but all the other media outlets are very neutral. I mean, as a human being, I believe no human being is neutral. We can be indifferent to things. We're not neutral. Let's be very clear. Like, I'm very open. I'm biased. But I try to be objective as much as I can in my understanding. But then you add the, the media. I mean, uh, you know, I remember like foreign policy magazine saying, oh, it is a return to normalcy. Then you had the New York Times uh, saying, uh, oh, the end of the tumultuous years under Trump. Now Blinken has come back. But honestly, even now, it's not the media is still throwing softball questions most of them, they're not really, as they say, going after their administration. I mean, you look at the questions thrown at Jen Psaki and Jen Psaki, you know, uh, there are no curveballs and, you know, she can just deflect and, uh, you know, uh, whatever she wants to do. So so what does it say about the American media then? I mean, uh, is it really American interest? Or they're just partisans now, whether it's Fox News or whether it's CNN or everyone. I guess every side has a partisan media. Uh, the Republicans could do uh, well with two, three more. But yeah, the Democrats have, you know, two, three now. Yeah, well, so I would maybe just emphasize a little bit more how bad Trump was on this. I mean, and this is where I think there's a lot of hypocrisy whether it's from Fox News or Republicans who are being very critical of Joe Biden now, I think we have to be, you know, let's, if we want to be fair, we got to acknowledge that Biden's hands weren't completely tied, but they were partly tied by Trump's deal with the Taliban last Absolutely. year, which I think if we look back at the text of that agreement, it, it's a disaster. It's just remarkable. I mean, for one, Trump cut a deal with the Taliban without the Afghan government being a party to it. They were cut out. And it's remarkable. We have a lot of leverage because the Taliban Taliban leaders were being killed by us by drone strikes for years. They wanted to stop that. So we had a lot of leverage to basically say, hey, if you want us to stop killing your leaders, then you have to do X, Y, and Z. But we didn't really ask a whole lot from them. And Pretty much, they just gave us assurances that they're not going to let um, Al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups operate from Afghan soil. Important, great. But that's not the only thing we should have been asking for. We should have said, we are not going to withdraw until there is a deal between the Taliban and the Afghan government and make that a priority. But instead, it's listed as item number four as oh, the Taliban and the Afghan government, it will be an, they will um, conduct talks in the future. So we were leaving it as an item to basically be postponed instead of really insisting on it. So naturally, 
um, you know, and, and once you sign a deal, then you lose all your leverage because we can't go to the Taliban after we already sign a deal with them and say, well, actually, you know what, guys, we'd like to add some other things on the deal. They'll say too late. We already had this conversation. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting and, you know, perhaps in history books and memoirs, we'll hear more about um, j- j- exactly why Trump was such a bad negotiator. And it's not Trump himself. It's his, it's his senior officials, Zalmay Khalilzad and others who, who basically did, uh, you know, a very, a, very, um, a very unequal deal with the Taliban. The Taliban got a lot more than we got out of it, right? So I think that's mm-hmm. the first thing we have to say. And that's why when I see Republicans freaking out and talking about how Biden is humiliating the U.S. with this surrender, the surrender started last year with Trump, because I think part of the reason is Trump wanted to um, show that he was a, a deal maker, that he was able to do something others hadn't done before. This would make him look good um, before the election. Also, Americans, the majority of Americans wanted us to get out, you know, depending on what polls you, you looked at. Okay. So that's that. Um, when it comes to how the partisan media is, is looking at Biden now, I haven't, you know, I'll, I'll maybe defer more to you, Kushal, on this. I, since I don't have a TV, I don't have like the fullest sense of how, <laughs> of how, how softball, softbally the questions are. From what I've seen, and I, I, what I do look at is the New York Times homepage pretty much every day. I have my critiques of the New York Times, but at least you'll know that you get, you have reporters on foreign policy, not on all countries, but I think on Afghanistan. Generally, their coverage is is pretty good, um, and I see that they're they are generally taking Biden to task. There's been a lot of cr- um, critical coverage, New York Times, Washington Post about the incompetence of the Biden administration. Um, Maybe it could be even more critical, or maybe there could be more anger. But I'll just say as being part of the establishment here in D.C., being part of the so-called blob and think tanks and all of that, I'd say a lot of us have been extremely critical of the Biden team, even though I voted for Biden. I want, you know, um, that's uh, I'm a Democrat, even though I'm someone who's critical of the Democratic Party in a number of ways. So, I mean, I think that we are holding this administration to task. Could it be more? And I'm not sure about other. Um, you know, I haven't I haven't seen the t- you know the the TV outlets as as much. But I think you're right that generally, if Trump had done this, it's fair to it's fair to expect that um, everyone would be even more critical. Uh, than they currently are. Like whatever Trump does, the very fact that he's involved makes people more angry and and they take it more personally and so on. Um, And um, anyway, so that's just my, that's my thought on that. Yeah. Because if you, if you ask me honestly, and look, I'm not someone who's a Trump supporter. Like I, I'm a libertarian by nature. So if I was in America, Trump is not my guy. So I'm very clear. I just want to state that on the record here. I, I find that guy to be absurd. Very entertaining, but very absurd. But here's my point. I, I'm sure if Trump would have done this, I would have seen rallies in America, in all major cities. Uh, again, shouting and screaming, not my president, with placards holding uh, Muslim Lives Matter or something of that sort. I, I know this was going to happen. It is so predictable it's going to happen because I just think when it comes to these sort of things... Uh, 
in 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 general the left has a more uh, you know as they say a penchant for uh, performative arts when it comes to activism it's just the left wing world view and they always tend to be more performative in their activism and wh- whether it's their activism on social media or whether it's their activism on the ground yeah. that's just a, a very left wing trait uh, i think a conservative right wing trait has always been you know leave me alone i just want to kind of live my life kind of a thing i i just think that's always been the way although the there is this uh, alt right in america that seems to be the exact copy of the performative left in terms of getting down on the ground and all the the placards and stuff like that which i find very interesting but the classical conservative is always been you know leave me alone so i definitely feel if you ask my opinion i think if trump would have done this as they say shit would have hit the roof they would have been chaos everybody oh we're all going to die uh, where oh no 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 we're all going to die in america how he's leaving afghanistan no but we're going to die in america we don't have an answer for that but we're going to die for sure so i do feel that would have happened and which is why i find it absurd like, i i find the whole claim that cnn claims neutrality absurd to the core I, i'll be very honest here i find it laughable as a human being and as a thinker that somebody can even use the word neutral for themselves as if I mean how are you neutral <laughs> I don't know but I've heard this word specifically used from CNN journalists sitting in India watching on the news channel and I always tell my family members why do they keep calling themselves neutral so I I find this performative aspect in American media a lot and I think this uh, this this virus has gone into even late night comedy shows in America where even I think they are part of this larger political narrative as if you know they also have to toe the line i don't know what they're going to do that trump is gone but now let's talk about this do you think there will be a political fallout of this where i don't know i recently heard i i, I don't remember the polling uh, numbers but i think biden's popularity numbers have fallen down post yeah. this it has affected this obviously i look i get it human human memory is very short like we're short shouting about this right now but then you know i i i remember this uh, this analogy told to me by a veteran journalist i'm not going to take the name here but uh, you know that journalist had explained this thing about media coverage across the world to me and we have this weird phenomenon in india right we have a lot of stray dogs in india and they're like you know when the car passes by the stray dog gets very agitated because i guess because of the lights or something of that sort <laughs> and they run after the car and they bark and then the car goes and then another car comes and the dog starts it again and it's always the same she's like so the news items are like the cars that pass by and the cars keep changing like the news items keep changing and we the people keep changing so do you really think this is going to have any long term impact on joe biden i i i really don't see joe biden doing a second term just from physical health parameters but if he was to i i wish him the best of health and happiness in his life but do you think this kind of uh, a nightmare scenario where un- you know not only just taliban lives but american soldiers losing their lives you know i think the right now the count is i don't know 12 or 13 uh, I-, i don't remember the exact count do you hmm. think this is going to have any electoral uh, impact in the long term yeah look i i think it definitely will not because Americans care that much about Afghanistan or Afghans but I think that one thing we can say about the American people is that we don't like to be losers we don't like to be perceived as being humiliated on the world stage 
So when we see these images, and I think we're also responsive to images, and we've already had a number of defining um, pictures and videos that I think are going to be hard to put out of our memory. I mean, the the picture of um, people, you know, trying to hang on for dear life as the American the, the American planes are trying to leave the runway. I mean, we're not. I'm not going to forget that. So even if even if it's not totally fair to the Biden administration, people will still interpret things a certain way, and they'll. And they're beginning, I think, they inevitably are going to associate Biden with maybe being a little bit weaker than they expected, that Biden isn't as competent as they thought he would be. So even if you're sympathetic to withdrawal, you still can't help but be affected by this, because especially, you know, um, it undermines a core claim of the Biden administration, as I mentioned earlier, but also I think what was one of the main reasons Biden said we have to withdraw from Afghanistan? One of the main reasons is that we can't keep on putting our American, our American service members in harm's way. But now, um, with 14 being killed, they have been put in harm's way contrary to what Biden was promising. So Biden's policies inadvertently and indirectly have led to a situation where once again, Americans are being killed in terrorist attacks thousands of miles away. So on, these are the core claims. These are the core reasons behind what, what um, um, you know, he said that we wouldn't, that wouldn't, we want to stop that from happening. He said that we're going to be competent. So, so I think that it's going to be hard to recover from that. And one major difference between Biden and Trump is that if this I now that I'm hearing the case that you made, Kushal, I think you're actually right that we can imagine there being protests and slogans and Muslim lives matter like people. The resistance would find a way to make this about Trump and to kind of have to magnify it and amplify it. But at the same time, Trump would have had an advantage because he would have found other ways to piss people off and other controversies with Trump. It, it's hard to focus on one thing. So Trump probably would have done something else a week or two after, and people would have had to kind of focus on whatever the new controversy was. The problem with Biden, he's not like that. He doesn't come up with new controversies. So it's been what two or three weeks where this has been the number one issue it's been on the front page of the, of the New York Times every single day. It's because he doesn't really have a lot of other things to distract us from the Afghanistan debacle. So it seems like we're going to keep on focusing on this at least for a few more days, maybe longer. We'll see. But that's a, that's a problem that Biden has is that he doesn't have the same political skills, if you want to call it that, to distract people from yeah. his incompetence. Trump was always able to find new distractions. Yeah, I guess in the case of Trump, uh, his weakness was his strength that he had a dedicated group of haters. Uh, uh, I think which is incomparable in uh, to Biden. I don't think so. Biden has that kind of people who hate him, that kind of pathological yeah. hatred that, like, I, I call it the Sam Harris hatred standard. Like, Sam's hatred for Trump is hilarious i like for a for a person who is so rational when i listen to sam on trump i started i start cracking up every time i listen to him 
I, I just, I don't know. I find it so funny that I can't control myself because you know I'm a subscriber of his podcast. I listen to every podcast. I love listening to him. And he's such a bright guy. And I just find it funny and I keep laughing. And I can just imagine, you know, Trump, all it would have taken Trump was he would have tweeted something about some obscure issue in America and everybody would have run because, look, Trump was the best business offer for media. Like media, you you know the numbers better than I do in America. I mean, with Trump, all the media houses were just going up and up and up. And yeah. they were like, oh, he, he, he is the second coming. I don't know as far as they are concerned, as far as their big business prospects are concerned. So in that sense, but with Biden, I think the only saving grace, again, this is my analysis sitting in India. I think the only thing that he's going to be saved with is, is uh, the vice president. Because they're going to be like, if we get rid of him, she comes. Okay, let's stick to Biden. At least <laughs> there's something over there. I'm just being very honest. Sitting in India, that's the impression we get. Now I could be wrong, and and if you know if the the viewers sitting in America, because I do have a significant American viewership too, uh, if they see Kushal, what the hell are you talking about? Look, I'm just sitting here and making a comment that you know the vice president uh, is seen to be even more incompetent, even with a functioning Biden before the Afghanistan fiasco. So I guess maybe I don't know. Maybe that's the saving grace for Biden in the long run. But I think also like it's interesting that you mentioned the vice president because I kind of forgot about her. And it's it's remarkable how how little she figures into the conversation. In some ways, she's become a non-entity. Like people have, I think, you know, she wasn't hugely prop popular at the beginning, but I think there's been a major, a major rec. People have just kind of lost faith in her, and I think there's not a whole lot of optimism that she would be a strong candidate in 2024. So I think you bring up a good point: is that you know, if we're talking about People have issues with Biden and Biden isn't great on foreign policy. And he's he looks like he's more incompetent than he seemed before. But the alternative isn't great. I mean, Kamala, I mean, she just hasn't really been maybe on domestic policy. People have more respect for her because that's where her strengths lie. But on foreign policy, forget about it. And it's just interesting that I'm not even sure she said much about Afghanistan or, uh, you know, Usually you look to the vice president to kind of be part of the conversation. In this case, it, it's certainly she's certainly not present in that way. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I was just reading this New York. Uh, there's a New York Times piece yesterday about how internally Democrats are becoming increasingly concerned that the House might flip to the Republicans. And it's not just about Afghanistan. I think it's a general sense that in August, August has been a pretty bad month for, for Biden. Um, the Delta variant has gotten worse. The, va you know, the vaccine policy isn't going well. It's just like a lot of the things that we thought Biden would be good on his core strengths, the two major issues in American politics today, at least today, it might change next week are the virus in Afghanistan, on, on those two things, Biden just doesn't seem like he's up to the task. There's a, a sort of sense of exhaustion that he, it's, he's tired. He's not really there. And I don't mean I don't mean to make a comment about his cognitive abilities. I'm not a fan of that whole discourse. But there's a sense that he's just not up to the task in a more general sense, that he's just not a great president. He's not a strong president even if he's a better president than Donald Trump, I mean, the, the bar is low. I think for, for those of us who are anti-Trump, 
I mean, it's not hard to clear that that very basic bar, but we also want our democratic presidents to just be competent. We want to feel confident that they know what they're doing. And I think we can't really say that with any level of assuredness that we're, we think that this man, Biden, can really get things done. And that, that's where it's a kind of intangible thing. It's not about numbers. It's not about poll numbers necessarily. It's about, do we feel good about this guy? And I think a lot of us are starting to feel like, oh, he had a good first six months, but he doesn't. he just doesn't seem up to it these days and at least recently we'll see if he can recover but for now that's i think the sentiment yeah so one last question shadi so i think this is more like a macro narrative question so i'll lay out what i feel now a lot of people don't like to admit this but you know a globalized world will never be in a kind of scenario which a lot of people think that yes there'll be democracies independent countries but to say that the world is not going to have some sort of uh, order where somebody acts like a, uh, I don't know, uh, to use this word in the most responsible way possible, policeman. I know people don't like to admit to this, but yeah, the world is always going to be having a policeman. Now, I'll be very open. I don't think India is going to be that policeman ever. Well, we are we are a country with an average income of $2,300 to $2,500. I think we should you know fix our economy first, grow first, and then maybe, you know, think outside those things so in the current scenario let's get let's be as honest as possible there are three players in the world world you know podium as such on one side you have america and its allies uh, whatever they are now we don't even know who is america's ally anymore and there is china and maybe russia these are three ideologies and ideas that are you know, trying to be a world policeman in a different kind of way. The way America has behaved in Afghanistan. Now, I can tell you in India, you know, the response has been very, 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 you know, mixed. Like people have Indians, a lot of Indians are disappointed with what America has done, especially in the case of Afghanistan, because India and Afghanistan have actually got very good relations. Also, the last time shit hit the roof in Afghanistan, things started happening in Kashmir. So we have not forgotten that. So whatever happens in Afghanistan tends to have a very direct consequence on India, obviously because of Pakistan and the whole ISI involvement with Taliban and, and various other issues. But the point is the world was always going to have a policeman. And then recently we had, I think it was the Global Times of China saying, oh, now that the Americans have behaved like this in Afghanistan, how can Taiwan ever rely on America? And these kinds of feelers have already started to be given. What does this do? So this will be my last question. What does this do to the overall American image as the world policeman? Yeah, well, I think that what folks on the left don't always realize or they're not willing to acknowledge it is that there, there is going to be a hegemonic power. My view is that for all of its faults, and I, you know, I'm very critical of the U.S. record when it comes to the Middle East, supporting authoritarian regimes, Israel-Palestine, as we talked about last time I was on. But if I had to choose between the U.S. being the hegemonic power or China or Russia increasingly filling that vacuum, it's no contest. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think this is all very frightening, this sense that the U.S. just isn't up to the task anymore, whether it was Obama 
with the Syria red line, whether it was Trump's Trump's general, the, the sense that Trump was incompetent or didn't know what he was doing, whatever it might be. And now we have Biden making these mistakes in Afghanistan. You know, if this keeps on happening time and time again with different presidents who are quite different from each other, you know, it does start to, I think, have an have a profound effect on how people view us, uh, whether or not they want to make common cause with us. And I we've seen the coverage in, in various news reports that European officials, both publicly, but also behind closed doors, what they're saying, they're saying, we would have never expected this from the Biden team. You get a real sense that even they're they they may not may not have had the highest expectations, but they're shocked. They're honestly shocked. And it makes them it makes them well, what is credibility? Credibility is a function of how people perceive you. It's not about facts. It's not about IR theory, international relations theories, where you're saying, well, here's what the academic literature literature says on credibility. No, I mean, credibility in the moment is about what people perceive. Whether their perceptions are accurate or not is a different issue. They might be wrong, but mm -hmm. fine. Okay. So the Biden folks might say, well, oh, European officials shouldn't be thinking this about us. Well, they are thinking that about us. And whatever their perceptions are at a given moment will shape European policy going forward, where they start to make maybe they start to reassess certain things a little bit more. Or you have someone like Emmanuel Macron in France who says, this shows us more and more that we need to emphasize strategic autonomy. We need to start fending for ourselves more. There are European officials who see things more in that light. So I think that, you know, that we're going to see more of that. Um, certainly if you're an Afghan, if you're someone in the Afghan army now, you know, Obviously, that's gonna, you're, you're going to think to yourself, you know what, whatever the U.S. promises us in the future, we're done. This is bullshit. You know, at some level, there's a limit to the number of betrayals that you can sort of take on. And if it keeps on happening, you might say, well, oh, in previous administrations, there were other betrayals, but people still had no other choice but the U.S.? Fine. That'll probably still continue. The U.S. is still the superpower. The U.S. still provides things that China and Russia can't provide, but we can't rest on our laurels. At some point, this starts to have an effect, and these things are hard to measure, especially in the moment, and we'll have to kind of look 10 or 20 years down the road and try to track when things really started to change or when certain groups started to lose even more faith in, the American, in American commitments, but we shouldn't want to test that. So when people say, well, Shadi, you know, don't worry too much about this. People always complain about the U.S., but they keep on coming back to us. Maybe. But do we really want to test that proposition? How much do we want to push that assumption? And that's what I'm that's what I worry about. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I think there is a lot of chatter even inside Indian Indian circles. I think India has had this discussion, too, and. India is a serious player in the world stage too. No matter what people want to say, India is a yeah. very big player in the world stage. And if you know there are talks like that happening in India too, as in, what the hell did the Americans just do? Uh, especially when it comes to Afghanistan, you know, India and Afghanistan and that entire area is of 
you know, humongous strategic interest to India from India's foreign policy perspective. So, yeah, I hear you. And I hope America self-corrects because let me be very clear. And I don't care. You know, sometimes, you know, the kind of audiences I have, they, they're like, oh, why do you have to say that? Look, the world needs America. Because I always tell people, because if America fails, in a way, democracy fails. You want yep. democracy to fail? You want communism to succeed? I don't. <laughs> I for sure don't want communism to succeed. Because again, like I always said, moral objectivist here, some systems are better than others. Democracy is objectively better than communist dictatorship. So so I would never, I, I wish the greatest of happiness and wealth to an average Chinese person. I wish nothing but happiness to them. But their system sucks. In my eyes, it sucks. Yes. Their government sucks. I'm sorry. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Uh, is China richer than India? Absolutely. But do I think India has a better system than China in political governance? Hell yeah. I love my country system. I don't want to. <laughs> and when I see people literally praying for America's failure and then even Americans in a weird way kind of praying for the failure because of political tribalism. I don't know. I just sit here and I wonder, I mean, have <laughs> I don't know, maybe people have lost it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm wrong. But oh, well, what, what do we do? So I guess we'll end the talk over here, Shadi. Once again, pleasure talking to you. And, and you know, I, I'm really, you know, happy that at least when I reach out to you, you come and chat because nowadays, you know, with, with the kind of polarization we have, thanks to social media, it's 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 impossible to convince people to come and chat across platforms. Otherwise, you know, we live in silos. And, and I'm actually glad yeah. that you do come out and always, you know, agree to talk to me whenever I've reached out to you. So thank you. Very yeah. Much. And it's Kushal, great to be with you. It's, it's good to be on a second time and hopefully to be continued. Uh, always enjoy talking. All right, guys. So we'll end today's discussion. Uh, I'll leave all the links to, uh, you know, Shadi's work, whether it's his work in The Atlantic or Wisdom of the Crowds or his book. That will be there in the description of the podcast. So please go and buy his book and read his book. It's an excellent book. I think everybody should read. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe to the channel, like the video. You know the drill. I'll see you next time. Until then, namaste.